The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Throughout history, dreamers have opened the door for positive change that reshapes the world. Our dreams and stories can also attract individual prosperity and success. Join creative artist Valerie June, Aisha Ophelia, Jacqueline Suskin, and Sarah Walco for The Power of Radical Imagination, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode. I'm so excited about our guest today. Let me begin with a question. Do you believe we're living in a holographic universe? I have long felt this is so. And so when one of my favorite authors, Dr. Jude Curavan, wrote a book called The Cosmic Hologram, I was all over it. We are gonna be discussing her book today and several of her other books, but just a quick couple of announcements for you real quick. I'm so excited to tell you that we have reached 10,000 downloads on my free app, the Awakened Way app. You can find it in the App Store and Google Play. Just search Awakened Way. But 10,000 of you are benefiting from those inspiring daily messages. I'm just so thrilled with that because we only launched it three months ago. So check that out. And perhaps if you're watching live today, January 10th, let me bring up the banner here. You can join me tonight for my monthly connection webinar, two hours of sharing amazing evidence that I've gotten from the the connections I make in my readings with those who have passed during the past month, amazing teachings from those in spirit, all new over the past month, and just energy like this for two hours this evening. You just need to go to my homepage and scroll down just a little. You'll find a little thumbnail there. Click there and register. If you can't join us live, you will get access to the video afterwards. So enough of that. I have been telling anybody who attends my classes that the way that we have evolved, that we, the way we advance ourselves and live the awakened way is through three E's. Educate yourself about the greater reality. Experience for yourself that you're part of this greater reality and engage the intelligent beings who are in that greater reality. That's what I've done. And that's how I get, came to know Dr. Jude Curavan. And I know from reading her books, she subscribes to the three E's too, because she is incredibly educated. And I'm so thrilled that she's here today to share with us. Dr. Curavan, Jude, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, Suzanne, thank you. And I love your three E's. I love them. Yeah, it, it's the thing is, we can read and read and read and get information. But until you experience for yourself and make this your reality. It's just book knowledge. And I want to show everybody all the books behind you there. I love that. (laughs) You are certainly well-educated and the perfect spokesperson for today, because I, I mean this with the greatest respect, Jude, you are incredible, an incredible scientist, 
but you're in some ways even more woo-woo than I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm way to the, I'm way to the other side of woo-woo. And I've been at that side of woo-woo since I was four years old. So it's been a long journey of woo-woo. Oh, see, see, because I only became woo-woo uh, after my Navy career. But when I read your books and look, everybody, I have four of them right here. Four. We'll talk about several of them today. Uh, she is one of my favorite authors because she explains how and why things happen and the universe is the way it is, but also has her own personal experiences and talks to discarnate intelligences, higher beings. So I'm doing too much talking. I want to turn it over to you. Would you just share some of your background, uh, your education, and what brought you to this work? Thank you, Suzanne. I mean, I, I guess, first of all, I'd say that it's been a scenic route. I don't know if, if my, uh, my American friends know this term. It's been very much a flowing scenic route. And I guess it's been a journey that, as we said, began when I was four years old, when I had my first, um, what I'd call discarnate experience, my first communication with other realms, which of course you, you do all the time now and I do continually all the time. Um, but it was, that first experience was in my bedroom okay. um, as a four-year-old and I heard a voice in my head not outside through my ears, but inside in my head. And it was it was a lovely voice. It was a really kind, engaging invitation. And I, I was so curious. And I don't know about any of our listeners, but you know, at that age, what's not natural about a discarnate appearance in your bedroom? You know, it's the way it is. So that's a journey that's continued ever since. And you know, but did did you that would that be like the imaginary friends that that people downplay in their children in the past but now we're encouraging people to say no it's not so imaginary i i agree i think for all of us you know i i mean i never i never told anybody so i was very fortunate in not having anybody say oh it's just imaginary it's just your imagination forget it um and it was sort of a lot of imaginary friends tend to be young ones as well literally they're friends you play with them yeah yeah um but this was a, this was an incredibly wise ancient entity that's been with me all my life oh i keep getting goosebumps as you as you talk about it it's so yeah and, and i've been given information that I, even then and i would not have known this language at that age but it's been a lifelong journey where that engagement, the, the third E engagement, the second experience and engagement came before the education. Yeah, this and is the point for everybody listening. That's what engage means. You have the experience of a presence. And then like Jude did, she interacted with them. They're not just here. They want to communicate with us and have a lot to share. Absolutely. An enormous amount of wisdom and guidance and love and support to share and that's been an ongoing journey so starting at four years old the the, the greatest question from i was just why why is it like this what is why, why 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 my mother used to say that why was my favorite word it still is my favorite word my second is how but my first favorite is why and so this has been a journey of curiosity and 
I guess this is the same for you with your experiences. When we open ourselves up, first of all, to the possibility that what we're experiencing could be real, and then realizing through that deeper engagement that it is real, then we're on this, this ongoing, um, ongoing journey of curiosity and revelation. And what I know for your life, it's been incredibly enriching. And you now sharing this wisdom with others and inviting others into this. And it's been the same journey for me. So from four years old and ongoing, this multidimensional experience and engagement has been my life, my life. And yet what it did was it also invited me into studying science and physics at Oxford University, moving into an international business career just for the whatever of it and enjoying it. That surprises me. You're studying physics at Oxford. Now you're coming to us from the UK now, from Newbury. We'll talk about that later. But you're studying physics at Oxford and then you went into the corporate world. Is it, That was the progression or was it the other way around? It was the universe making sure that I didn't go into academia. Oh, wow. Because I was well, all set up. Okay, why would... Why were you supposed? Why were you not supposed to go into academia? <laughs> I only realised it years afterwards. But essentially, I know now from many folks who are in an academic environment just how difficult it is for them to continue their curiosity in the way I've been treated to all my life. So I'm I sort of continuing to investigate. And nobody said no. Nobody said you can't do that. Or if you do do that, you can't speak about it or write about it. And yet if I had gone into the sort of academic path that certainly while I was at Oxford seemed to be the future, I don't think we'd be having this conversation now because I feel that the academic environment would have made it very, very difficult for me to continue to explore and discover to a point that I could share it and invite others into this journey with us. So instead I went into international business because I'm, I'm, I'm really good at math, so I can add up really well, I can do sums really well. So I went into a financial role and eventually became one of the most senior business women in the UK, working globally and enjoying it wonderfully and grounding myself because what I'm now working with is transformational change whether it be in in, in education or, or economics or finance or governance or whatever and all those areas I encounter deeply because I had 25 years of international organizational experience to get really you know head to head as it were and immersed in those environments. So nothing's been wasted. Yeah. But it's cynic. <laughs> I, I love that that you're going to take spirituality and science and help us make it very practical. You can see applications to our real world at this level. Yeah. Fabulous. So for me, that's key. That's key. And now your PhD? Well, after I um after 25 years in, in corporate life. I'd, got, I'd loved it, but I'd got to a stage where if I had to do another strategic business plan, I would have not had any hair left. I was like, no more, no more. And I was given some guidance that, yes, it was time to move on. And I was getting a real sense that something 
was coming. I didn't yeah, know what inner guidance, right? Inner, inner guidance, absolutely. The yeah. inner guidance that said, exactly. now it's time to move on. And I was given this sense something big was coming. This is what, middle of the 90s. So we're now 25 years on. And this is before I was aware of everything around, potentially around 2012 or now or whatever. And what I realized is I was given early insight into these times, these pivotal times where our general worldview, which is a worldview of materialism and of separation, that doesn't open up to all that we're sharing now, but that worldview, unless unless we, we woke, woke up from that, would bring us to where we are now. So I was given essentially a further 25 years apprenticeship in how to perhaps serve what is now coming through in a way that I would be able to serve and to share it and to help others through this time of, of massive change and hopefully conscious evolution. Now, 25 years ago, all I knew was I it was time to leave business. I had no idea what was coming. It was like, it was like the fool in the tarot, sort of, you know, taking a, a jump off the cliff with a rose in the hand. Yes, yes. But I trusted. I trusted the guidance because I'd had that guidance for the previous 40-odd years. So I'd come to – I might not trust myself, but I trusted that guidance. So I did what I was invited to do. And I'm so glad I did. But after that, um, it's a long story, but part of it was was researching a PhD doctorate in ancient cosmologies because at Oxford, my physics had focused on quantum physics and cosmology, which is the, the study of the whole universe. But of course, my cosmology was much bigger than the cosmology that Oxford University Physics Department was teaching me. Wow, wow. <laughs> and when I did my PhD, it was to research ancient cosmologies because cosmologies are the narrative we tell ourselves about who we are and how we are in the world and what the world is. So for me as a cosmologist, it's been an ever deeper journey into the nature of reality. Yes. And, and so the PhD was researching ancient cosmologies and the ancient wisdom that understood web of life oh. that understand in, instinctively, intuitively, spiritually, that we're all spiritual beings having a physical experience within a, a whole world. Yes. So that was wonderful because it brought me much deeper and closer into this convergence of, of you know, leading edge science and ancient and universal wisdom teachings. Oh, I'm so envious that you had that experience, but to, to dive in as you did. But as I say that, I also have the awareness that I've been doing that, and many of you listening now do that on our own as well, without the pressure of deadlines and theses to write, right? So, but you are, you have such a wealth of knowledge, and when you bring the science into it, it just takes it to a new level. So bravo for that. Your website I want to share with everybody, wholeworld-view.org, explains what your work is all about. And I'd like you to 
try to encapsulate that for a moment, but it's so beautiful because we just opened that website up a minute ago to make sure I had the URL correct. And the first thing that greets the person that goes to that website are the words, welcome home. (laughs) And and my heart just opened up when I read that because your work and, and what we know about the cosmos is that we're already home. Yeah. Yeah. So if we can help others come to that awareness that we don't have to die to reach heaven, that, that home, our natural state is right here and accessible, then we really come much closer to understanding wholeness and unity. So tell us about whole world view. Okay, well, when the Cosmic Hologram came out in 2017, I got a sense, and, and others who I, I was with at the time, thank you. <laughs> Showing the book on screen. <laughs> okay. Other folks that I was, I was with at the time uh, were saying this is more potentially this potentially this is more than a book. This could be a seed point, almost an acupuncture needle into our collective consciousness that could support us in understanding, experiencing, going back to the second E, and embodying, which I think is also that engagement the third E, unitive awareness. And so I just said, okay, whole world view. And um, we got the URL and we got a website and all the rest of it. But we also become became came together as change makers, the folks I was working with, but many, many, many others since then, tens of thousands across the world, many partner organizations. Um, progressively with this perception of a whole worldview which converges science and spirituality universal wisdom teachings so a visitor to whole worldview comes home is welcomed home into the wholeness of who we really are where mind and consciousness aren't something we have they're literally what we in the whole world are and I would like to just stop there a second because it's so key. And, and until you really dive in, we may not really grasp what you just said, that mind and information aren't what we have. They're what we are. Literally. Mind and consciousness aren't what we have. Because that's, that's the paradigm of materialism and separation that somehow – our minds after billions of years of of evolution somehow arise from our brains. Now that story, that narrative is being turned completely on its head. And the realization that our entire universe exists and evolves, meaningfully exists and purposefully evolves as a unified entity that is an entity that is cosmic consciousness. That's right. I said mind and information, mind and consciousness. I want to give a plug for your latest book, The Story of Gaia. If you are truly into evolution, this I've never seen such depth uh, of an explanation of how we got to this point here from the cosmic out-breath. You don't call it the Big Bang. You call it the Big Breath. And that's that's for another show. This is a very, very detailed uh, for the science-based mind, for sure, for sure. 
But it tells stories, Suzanne. Yeah. Because I think more people than than way more folks than um, read the, the the cosmic hologram, even though that's a bestseller and all the rest of it, are reading the story of Gaia, and it's changing them. It's changing them from the inside out. It's changing them so that, and I'm getting this now so, so much, that in reading it, the book reads them. This is the extraordinary thing that seems to be happening. It's like Gaia is reading you. When you pick up the story of Gaia, it's actually Gaia's reading you and inviting you. What do you mean? Well, it's like people are coming to it revering our planetary home and entering that book perhaps honoring our planetary home but they end the book being a Gaian <laughs> it's almost like that it's it's a transformation from being a just just you know a, a sense of being a human being where we have a relationship with our planetary home to a relationship where Gaia flows through us and we flow through Gaia, and we become literally a Gaian. Why don't you explain for those who have never heard the term Gaia, why, how that is different from Earth? Okay. Gaia was the name given by the ancient Greeks to the goddess of the Earth. And to the ancient Greeks, as to virtually all ancient peoples, the whole world was living, it was alive, it was conscious. And so the gods and the goddesses of ancient Greece were like archetypes, um, as were the, the gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt, for example. But when we talk of gods and goddesses, they are like archetypes of consciousness. They're collective essences of consciousness. So for the ancient Greeks, Earth was a goddess. So these are actual thought forms that, that actually are patterns of information and energy that are very real, standalone yes. intelligences within the greater the greater mind, correct? Yes. Yeah, exactly so. Exactly so. So, you know, they saw and perceived and experienced and engaged with our planetary home as Gaia as Mother Earth, as Goddess Gaia. And then a few decades ago, a planetary scientist called James Lovelock realized just how interdependent our entire planet is. You know, the cycles of the, the atmosphere, the waters, the land, as well as all the biological organisms of, of Earth. And he would probably not have gone so far as to, to perceive the sentience, the consciousness of Gaia. But he came up with something called the Gaia hypothesis to appreciate this profound interconnectedness. Now we have the evidence that the Greeks were closer to the understanding of Gaia's reality and that the entire universe is a conscious entity of which within its wholeness, there are these different levels of collective intelligence that are also individuated. So for us, yeah. we're unique aspects of that incredible wholeness. Yes, that's the wholeness you talks of and the books write about, and we now have the evidence for. 
so we have in, inherent meaning and purpose because we're part of an inherently meaningful and purposeful and evolutionary universe and evolutionary and conscious planet as a planetary home within a conscious and evolutionary universe. I, I, my heart is just blown wide open just connecting with you here today because I can feel the love you have, not just for this work, but for Gaia and for all of Gaia's inhabitants. It's just, it just radiates from you. So far from being just, just a dry scientist, looking at the facts, I know that you feel this way because you have interacted with Gaia and, and with goddesses and with, with other beings who inhabit this planet. In, in fact, in the beginning of each chapter in this book, I loved how you sat and did a meditation about the levels that you were tapping into. And you could feel that, that altered state of awareness that allowed you to access information that wasn't just from a book. Yeah. And this, this is what the book seems to be doing, you know. If people, as people read it, they're being invited into being companions and fellow travelers on this incredible evolutionary journey that, you know, started 13.8 billion years ago. That started with hydrogen and it's come to this point of, of planets and plants and people. But, you know, the hydrogen in our bodies is as old as the universe. We talk about ourselves being stardust. We're way older than that. We're older than stardust? <laughs> We're older than Ultimately, our story, our story is the story of our universe. Huh. We matter. We're here for a reason, a purpose, you know, a joy. What is that purpose? That's what everybody wants to know, Jude. What is that purpose? Why are we here? Well, it seems to me that our entire universe exists to evolve. It actually embodies. It doesn't just exist and evolve as a, in a wholeness, as a unified entity. It literally embodies an evolutionary impulse to evolve from simplicity to ever greater levels of complexity. So we now stand on its bow wave of potential continuing the evolutionary arc so you know by being its microcosmic co-creators we have this amazing opportunity to wake up to remember who we really are and who we can evolve to become and it's and it's wonderful because we talked about unity and unity and diversity what well, this is showing us that beyond it's unity in diversity. Even its unity inclusion is, in, is, is unity in belonging. We belong. We don't have to ask permission. We belong with each other, with Gaia, with our entire universe. This is why the first page of Whole of You says, welcome home. Yeah. Hmm. Can you all feel that? Is it beautiful? Yeah. You know, Jude, I have to show you so you can see here. Let me pull up just me on. I'll take my glasses off a second here. Focus on here. So here's here's your book. Look, I have, this is the Cosmic Hologram. Look at notes in the back. Here are pages, pages of notes that I have taken from your book. Wait, that's only part of it. It fell on the floor. More pages. 
More pages of notes. More pages of notes and massively highlighted, written on in the book. Uh, I'm just a, a total fan of the Cosmic Hologram book, uh, if not the others. Uh, I want, as you talk about Welcome Home, I would like to tell you that one of the most phenomenal questions you addressed in the Cosmic Hologram is who created, who makes our perfect universe? And your answer is so in alignment with my experience and with what I teach. I would like to see how you answer that question now. Who makes our perfect universe? I, I would go back to, to how Einstein described it. Um, you know, the infinite and eternal cosmic mind of which our universe is a great thought, a great and finite thought. And of course, as that thought is so grand, we are part of that thought. So we talk about cosmic mind, we can use other names, we can use God, but cosmic mind is all pervasive. There is nowhere that there isn't cosmic mind. God is everywhere. There is nothing that is not God because everything is part of this amazing, grand wholeness as a, as a universal thought and as an infinite ground of all being. So that's who, how, what makes our perfect universe. And we too are part of that co-creative, ongoing evolutionary journey of our universe's life story. Exactly. You know what you said in here that really jarred my belief system and turned it on its end was that the question itself, who created this, is a nonsensical question. It's a nonsensical question. And explain that, please, for those who haven't heard it put that way. Because it's still separating. Yeah. It's still separating as a creator and a creation. And there is no separation. There is a creator experiencing itself through its creation. And we're all part of that creation. And we're all part of that creative process. We are part of it. So to say who created it makes that God separate from us instead exactly. of this wholeness and this it's the wholeness. And we, you know, and we are microcosmic co-creators because each of us is unique, and yet we're all part of this same ongoing whole journey together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. You describe yourself as a cosmologist. I know we've dived into already what the cosmos is and studying this beyond the universe view, the all that is. You also describe yourself as a futurist. How would you define that? Throughout history, dreamers have opened the door for positive change that reshapes the world. Our dreams and stories can also attract individual prosperity and success. Join creative artist Valerie June, Aisha Ophelia, Jacqueline Suskin, and Sarah Walco for The Power of Radical Imagination, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. I suppose it's my curiosity of the potential that we have, you know, I talked a bit earlier about us being on the bow wave. You know, for the last 13.8 billion years to that very first moment 
of, as you say, I, I describe not as a, a big bang. It wasn't big and it wasn't bang in a sense of chaotic. It was an extraordinarily fine-tuned and ordered first moment of an ongoing big breath. So as space has expanded and time has flowed ever since, at this moment, there is an evolutionary story of our entire universe from simplicity to complexity. We now, with Gaia, with our entire universe, because as Einstein's genius realized, when we bring space and time as relative together, they form something called invariant space-time, which means that we do have an arrow of time. We do have a level of causality from that very first moment to now. But the future is not written. The future is not written. It is insofar that the laws of physics are the laws of physics throughout the whole thing. But the future of consciousness and individuated consciousness and planetary consciousness and universal levels of awareness are still in the process of potentiality and unfolding. That to so, me is exciting. Very exciting. It's, it's incredible. And because we now understand that this whole journey is meaningful and purposeful, it offers us this opportunity at this point, this here and now point, for our both our personal and our collective choices. Do we still stay in the illusion of separation that's brought us to this point? Or do we literally wake up yes. to remember that we're inseparable? We're unique, but we're inseparable from our entire whole world, our entire universe. What an opportunity. I just realized why I enjoy your book so much. There are truly, if you look through this, like the cosmic hologram, some sections are highly written all over and others there are, there are pages where there are no words because your your science background comes in and I don't understand the physics. <laughs> but that's okay. I don't need to. But the point is, I've always told everybody that the energy of an author or any writer comes through in their writing. And your energy just, you can tell your passion, your joy, your love for what you write comes through here. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I was I was going to ask you a question as I was reading the story of Gaia. You know, where do you get where does the new information come from to write new books? And and how how do you keep advancing your understanding? And then I looked in your notes in the back, the footnotes. How do you have time for anything? This is so well referenced. You've you're clearly on the cutting edge of keeping up with all the latest discoveries and developments. Does your husband ever see you? Without <laughs> <laughs> you being like this? <laughs> fortunate, well, fortunately for me, he does. I mean, whether it's fortunate for him, I hope it is. I love him so much. He's amazing. Um, the great thing, to be honest, Suzanne, is, is because these books, I feel, write me. I, I don't feel I write them. I don't go in, even though I had a pile of references that high, before each of those books, when the books begin to unfold and flow, almost that pile of references, it's just like it's my comfort blanket, but I don't, I don't really need it. Um, and so in that sense, the books 
have written me, and especially with the cosmic hologram, and now the story of Gaia, I could not have written those books because the, the, the subject matter is so vast. So what I did was I just opened myself to serve the higher purpose. Notice how she said this, everybody. She put her hands, if you're just listening on podcasts and I'm not viewing it, put her hands up and just she could just see that energy, the information flowing through her. She opened herself to that flow. Beautiful. Bless you. And so it became, in that sense, I, I you know, things jumped out. Things came. I, I was given a word, and from that word I could find all that I needed to then, you know, incorporate in the book. And, and I just felt I was led. I felt I was just led and guided and helped through to bring in what was the, the, the best nuggets, the best, you know, the resonances of what would really share Gaia's story so that it then also had the greatest level of resonance with anyone who read the book, or as I say, the book read them they would feel that sort of sense of relationship and and love. I mean, as you said, I, I started the book loving her. I ended completely adoring her. Uh -huh. To such a degree that words were, it was beyond words. Nice. We spoke earlier about the fact that you're glad you didn't go into academia because you might have been restricted. Your book, The Eighth Chakra, was life-changing for me because until that point, I had not even it hadn't occurred to me to explore beyond the accepted understood seven chakras, which many scientists might poo poo because we can't see them. We don't have instruments to measure them. And yet you've written a whole book about another chakra above the physical body. And so yeah. uh, just diving into a different subject here, as I started meditating and focusing on the eighth chakra, it opened me up to new experiences and engagements. So you want to talk about that one for a minute? Thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm delighted to hear that because it's it, it's what happened to me. I mean, I was guided back in oh, 1998. Um, I had a major uh, experience uh, um, near Avery, where I live, um, and I was guided to take some journeys around the world at that point to activate the planetary grid for what might be coming. And I, I said yes. <laughs> and that led me on what became 13 global journeys that I, I wrote, write about in a book called The 13th Step. But it also, on an inner journey level, guided me into this experience of expanded awareness that I write about in the eighth chakra. And what I was understanding was the eighth chakra that I call the universal heart as well is that bridge of consciousness between our personal sense of self and our expanded transpersonal sense of self. So when that began to open through these journeys, it wasn't the end of the journey. It was just the beginning of a whole new level of, of expanded awareness that extended to a ninth chakra beneath my feet, a tenth chakra, 11th, 12th. So that was the, the, the outer journey was the 13th step. The inner journey was this ever expanding. And I called it the eighth chakra because everybody was talking about chakras at the time. But it's more a level of vibrational consciousness that connects us with that wholeness. 
with the whole world. And then the ninth chakra, or the earth star beneath our feet, is something is a, a level of awareness that has connected me in thousands, many, many thousands and growing numbers. Um, and a lot of healers, a lot of planetary healers with the heart of Gaia, with the sentience of Gaia and on and on and on. So that's the story of the, the eighth chakra. And now, after all these years, I'm being invited by global healing organizations. No branding, no trademarks, just what, how can we help to serve this evolution of consciousness by opening this universal heart? Yeah, I would like to correct what I said earlier. It's not the eighth above the head. You corrected me, and I'm so glad. It's been a while since I've read this one. I went and combed through my bookshelves to see how many of your books I could find. But it is that greater heart. And many of the people who are listening and watching today come to this because they want to learn how to connect with loved ones who have passed. All these things that we're talking about expand our consciousness, encourage us to play with energies and information that we don't access through normal senses. And so playing with these concepts that you introduce in your books opens us to greater experiences, new awareness, raises our consciousness and makes it all the more likely that we can then connect with our loved ones who have passed. That's why we have guests like Jude on the show today, because it's we are all one. Our loved ones who have passed are part of this oneness, this wholeness. And by experiencing ourselves beyond the known seven chakras and the physical body, we open ourselves up to adventures and consciousness beyond our, our imagining. Absolutely. And, it, and it's, a, it's an ongoing journey. Yeah, I'm, I'm as much a, you know, we're all fellow travelers, we're all companions <laughs> on this incredible, what I call a journey of homecoming, because it is a journey to remembering who we really are. And it is an invitation and an adventure. And, and I love what you just said, Suzanne, because, you know, the seven chakras traditionally are the sort of the, the, the mediators of our sense of self our conscious sense of self. And when we are living, experiencing, living, seeing the world in the worldview that's been general, certainly in our Western societies for many years, of, of materialism and separation, we can actually embody a lot of trauma through that process. And our hearts, which are absolutely vital to our experiences as what being a human being is all about, hurt in many ways. They hurt because, you know, that worldview of separation means that when our loved ones pass, we lose them. What the universal heart helps us to do is to realize we can never lose them because love never dies, because love is the most fundamental nature of, of the reality of our universe. I, I, I speak sometimes about what I write about as a science of love. Wow, so, wow. So by opening the universal heart within us, which we all can do, it actually helps to, 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 to heal that sense of trauma, you know, to heal that trauma and really be able then to have a, an amazing ongoing relationship on all levels of reality and, and with our loved ones as well. Now, 
you made a statement there. Love is, I wish you would say it again. Define love for us. Dr. Mm -hmm. Jude Curavan saying that love is what the fundamental, what is the, the fundamental nature of reality? The fun love is the fundamental nature of reality. I know this. I've experienced this. We live this. But to hear a scientist with degrees in physics and cosmology say love is the fundamental nature of the universe, would you please explain that to everybody listening? Okay. And by love, I don't mean the sort of the narrow sense, and I'm not you know, judging that in any way. I'm talking about love being wholeness, love being profound interconnectedness. You know, when we feel connected with something or someone, when we care about it, that is what love is. And I'm expanding that sense of connection to the whole universe because our universe is indeed whole. Yes, ma'am. That's why I, I define love as lack of separation. It's the same yes. thing. It's the same thing. When, when we wake up to realize we're inseparable, we can also wake up to the realization that we universally belong. We can also re wake up to the realization that we are love. That is our that is our nature. That is the nature of the whole world. And so our loved ones who pass still exist as consciousness connected in indivisibly. Yes. Right? And always present as beings within awareness. Okay. Wow. There's a story. May I share a story? Please. We love stories. <laughs> <laughs> I love telling stories. Um, some years ago, a very dear friend of, of my husband and I passed, and we were invited to his funeral. And the morning of the funeral, I went to the local florist to get a bouquet of flowers or a wreath of flowers for us to take to the funeral. And I walked into the florist shop and I heard up my friend's voice saying yellow. Okay, yellow. And then rose. And so, okay, that was giving me guidance that to take yellow roses. Perfect. And I looked, there was a very vibrant yellow bunch of roses there and he said no 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 that one and he pointed me to a, a much beautiful cream colored roses uh thank you for, for letting me know this is the uh, one who had just passed just passed yeah. this is the one whose funeral we we're going to do that afternoon mm -hmm. so i i was going to the florist to ask for the whole bouquet of the cream roses and he said no rose one rose oh one cream rose and i thought oh, this is so embarrassing i ca we cannot show up to someone's funeral with one flower <laughs> not good but he was insistent so i got the cream rose and my husband and i went to the funeral and as we approached his widow was standing in the entrance welcoming you know the the, the visitors and i heard the words give it to her and, you know, obviously, usually you just lay the wreath or lay the flowers by the, the, the entrance. So I, I offered her this cream rose and she looked at me. She looked at the cream rose and she didn't say anything. But her face, it was like shock. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, we went through the funeral, which was very beautiful. But afterwards, we, were, we came to speak with her and she told us this story. 
So they were married, her and her husband, who loved each other very much, were married for a long time. Every week on Friday evenings after work, he would bring home a bouquet of roses. And there would be a bouquet of red roses and one cream rose. Yay. And she said when I gave her the cream rose, she knew for the first time since he'd passed that he was still with her because she was so afraid that she'd lost him. Ah. And this was his way of showing her that, of course, she hadn't, she couldn't, and he was still with her. Beautiful. Beautiful. Don't we all love these stories, everybody? Yes. This, I mean, everybody listening has a story like this. So we just celebrate. That is so beautiful. I love that you you didn't doubt. You just step by step followed what you were hearing because he was right there and knew you could hear him. Yes, he did. He did. And he overcame my embarrassment at the thought of just taking one road. Yes, yes, that's true, right? Yeah. Good for you. Great. Well, thank you for that one. Before we run out of time, I want to talk about where you live. We started to talk about this before we went on the air, and, and I said, wait, let's do it on the air. So I'm not quite sure where this is going to go, but it, I know it will be interesting. You live in Avebury in, the, mm -hmm. in England, and you told me it's a little village, and I'm so envious because I love those small English villages. <laughs> but you also said it's a, quote, sacred landscape. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, we, I've lived just outside Avery for getting on for 30 years now. And for thousands and thousands of years, it has been a sacred landscape. So it's been, it has monuments. It has the largest stone circle that we're aware of. It has the largest man-made mound in Europe, both of whom are about four and a half thousand years old. It has earlier monuments, later monuments. What do you it, mean by monuments? For the, we I don't mean, have okay, I mean, we, we talk about cathedrals as monuments of, yes. of sorts. But and and you know, here in the United States, we'll have, you know, Civil War monuments. So 4,000-year-old yeah. monuments. Mm -hmm. What are they? 4,500-year-old monuments. Okay. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and older than that. So these are, these are stone circles. They are mounds. Um, Silvery being the largest one of them. There are stone avenues that are sort of avenues between uh, monuments that are marked by large stones. And these are big stones. These are tons in weight each. So if, if anyone would like to Google Avebury, A-V-E-B-U-R-Y, you'll see that it is not just a stone circle, but the stone circle itself, two thirds of a mile in circumference, is part of a much, much larger sacred landscape. So I, this is my heart, this is my home. But in the early 1990s, Avebury became, and its area became an epicenter for crop circles. So some of the earliest crop circles, many of the earliest crop circles arrived in the Avebury landscape and, and sort of surrounding areas. So I was attracted to this because the ancient stone circles were then finding their modern equivalent in the crop circles. Oh, yeah. And, you know, for many of us who, who work with these energies and earth energies, we're discovering that the crop circles were very um, reflective of these more ancient monumental landscapes. 
in many different ways. So um, I came down to live here. I researched crop circles more, to be honest, far more than the science of crop circles, because I started with a scientific curiosity, but it then became something much more experiential. Hmm. And I started to engage both with the ancient monuments and the landscape and the crop circles. And again, it was opening me up to inquiry and curiosity. This is the key, because at this point, I'm sure some people, I'm hearing 13% <laughs> of those listening are saying, oh, here we go. Now we're getting into the real woo-woo stuff, the crop circles. You know, Are we going to get into science fiction? But it's the curiosity, curiosity. willingness to be playful and experiment to see what we learn, how we can grow. If we just say that's nonsense, it's ridiculous, we have just limited ourselves. And we're here, as we said earlier, to be co-creators. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly that. And, you know, there is a, there is something that says, you know, keep your mind open, but don't let your brain drop out. That's so, it. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a great follower of that. But, you know, the, the scientific method 400 years ago was created by someone called Francis Bacon, who gets actually a very bad press now because it's seen that he, he took us down this road to materialism and separation. But actually, if you look at his original writings in Latin, that's not what they say. They talk about the possibility of a method of curiosity and investigation that if it's followed, with an open heart and an open mind, the evidence is followed, it actually can reveal the divine mm. and the wholeness. And 400 years later, after us going through this process of, of you know, materiality and, and, and um, separation, it is now revealing the wholeness and the divine because it's now converging with universal wisdom teachings. So it seems to me that when we are open and when we're rigorous and follow the evidence and, and also what it feels for us, what feels right for us, what feels, you know, what gives us a sense of test. Yeah. test. And just and follow it as you say, what you've experienced and engaged with Suzanne is so enriching, is so profoundly deepening of our experience as human beings as Gaians and as spiritual beings having a human experience and now we have you know we've now got the evidence to ground us in that to underpin and frame this and to naturalize this in ways that we've never had before hmm. so this could be the topic as we come up close to an hour here for another entire podcast talking about crop circles, but could you briefly tell us, you said you engage with the energies of the crop circle. Are they in your mind? I'm, I know there are some that are hoaxes. I've studied this phenomenon mm -hmm. enough to know there are some, but there are some that just cannot possibly not be real from something higher than ourselves. Are they here to teach us, to give us messages, to help our evolution? That's my sense and that's my experience 
because what I've realized, and I've been in some of the, I've directly experienced some of the most iconic crop circles ever, going back to the early 90s and going through, you know, the last 30 years, actually. And, you know, having been in a crop circle, for example, there was one that was at a place called Windmill Hill, which is next to Avebury. Um, and it, it was actually laid over the hill. It was something like 600 feet across. It was absolutely intricate. You could not tell what it was from the ground. If you took a, a, a sort of a, an aerial view, the geometry was perfect. And it arrived incredibly quickly. And others have, you know, we have the evidence that they arrived incredibly quickly. For me, I got to a point where my question wasn't who's making these, but what is the message of yes. Right. And for me, it was it really opened me up to a much deeper relationship with Gaia huh. decades before I, I wrote the story of Gaia or the story of Gaia wrote me. But it actually really grounded me in Gaia's essence. And I, I don't honestly know whether I would have been able to come to this perspective of writing or the story of Gaia writing me without those decades of being in the landscape in many, many different experiences and ways, but crop circles being a significant part of that. And it was a crop circle, that an experience of crop circle, that actually began the journeys that became the 13th step and the 8th chakra books. And I had no understanding or wish or anything to write any books. <laughs> I just had that experience yeah. and an invitation to explore further. I'm glad you did. I'm so, glad you did. Oh Tell us briefly. I'm gonna. I've just leafed through this this book here. This is another one. I'm gonna have to go back and read again. The wave. It has just the diagrams. My heart just goes. Yes, you are supposed to know about these things. And <laughs> briefly, what is this one about? Well, it was my first book, and it feels that it was a lifetime ago. But it, it actually was the beginning of sharing this understanding. So it's, it's a very straightforward, very simple book. It talks about, you know, how our universe expresses its energy and matter as waves. Let me interrupt myself. I know that I held it up on screen, but many people will only be hearing this as a podcast. The title is The Wave. The Wave, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry. And, and you know, it, it, was, it's, it was a very early book, but it, it, I think it lays out the ground. It lays out the terrain of what I've continued to write about in all the books since. And some of the books since, like The 13th Step and, and The Eighth Chakra, are very experiential. Others, like Hope, Healing Our People in Earth, are about how we, by this understanding, can bring hope, authentic hope, into healing ourselves and our world, and then onto the cosmic hologram and onto the story of Gaia. So they, they themselves have been a journey. I haven't read that book, Hope, and I didn't realize till you just said it that it is an acronym: Heal Healing Our People and, and Earth. Earth. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to run out and get that one. Another <laughs> book to read. Ha ha! Wonderful. I know it'll be good because you wrote it. I'm not just saying that. Everybody, check out Dr. Jude Caravan's work. Let me bring up her website again. Go to wholeworld-view.org, and if you go no further than the website itself, you will open up 
and raise your consciousness just from the energy that's coming through there. Jude, I have to ask you, you've a couple of times you've moved your head and there is a bust behind you on the shelf of some gentleman with the big beard there. Who is that? Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin. Okay. Yeah. So some people say Darwin is right. Some people say he's wrong. Why do you have Darwin on your shelf? Well, because he was a great pioneer and he was a great scientist. He followed the evidence as far as he could. He didn't speculate about it. What's come since then has in many ways misrepresented what he said. He didn't talk about evolution being driven by random mutations. He said that evolution was driven by organisms adapting huh. to and with their environment. You show and that so he went as far your as new book. You show that throughout your new book, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Adaptation, yeah. evolution, intelligence driving the whole thing. Yes. And and not random mutations, but between Darwin's initial insights and now, you know, there's been a sort of a mainstream view that evolution is driven by random mutations. They're not. We know they're not. Because, you know, to the extent that biological organisms go to huge efforts to, 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 to you know, to get rid of any random mutations, because they're almost always detrimental. Instead, the whole universe is underpinned and framed and pervaded by this inherent, loving, intelligent, evolutionary impulse so i really honor charles darwin we actually launched the story of gaia at the museum where in 1860 the very first debate on evolution took place oh wow because what i've written about in the story of gaia is like the new story the evolving story itself of evolution and i really feel that charles has been alongside me. <laughs> you know, literally, we know this is so. Literally. I love it. Dr. Jude Curvin, thank you for being our guest today. Will you come back again and be on the show sometime? Oh, yes, please. Yeah. Great. Oh, yes, We're going to hold you to that because there's so many more questions I have for you. And I just want to dive into it. And just you have such a treasury of experience and education and heart that I'd like to mine that. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody, isn't she awesome? Yay. Bless you, Suzanne. Thank you, everyone. You're welcome. All right. And thank you all for joining us. I see we had a very large audience here live, and hopefully, we'll get more as we continue showing this on YouTube and on all the podcast outlets. Meanwhile, everybody, go out and have a great couple of weeks till we come back with another guest. I love you all so much. It's that lack of separation that's so awesome. Bye-bye. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. 
I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.